civilians. UN Human Rights Chief Volker Turk said Russia's full-scale armed attack on Ukraine, which is about to enter its third year with no end in sight, continues to cause serious and widespread human rights violations, destroying lives and livelihoods. The UN Human Rights Monitoring Mission in Ukraine has verified almost 31,000 civilian casualties since February 24th, 2022, comprising 10,582 killed and 19,875 injured. The actual numbers are likely to be significantly higher. Millions have been displaced, thousands have lost their homes, and hundreds of medical and educational institutions have been damaged or destroyed, significantly impacting people's rights to health and education. Turk said the long-term impact of this war in Ukraine will be felt for generations. This month also marks 10 years since Russia illegally annexed Ukraine's autonomous Republic of Crimea and the city of Sevastopol. Joining us with the latest is Eric Reguli, an award-winning journalist and European bureau chief for The Globe and Mail. Eric Reguli is the author of Ghosts of War, Chasing My Father's Legend Through Vietnam. You can find our interview about his book at yourcallradio.org. And Eric Reguli joins us from Rome. Hi, Eric. Thanks so much for joining us again. Hi, Rose. It's, uh, it's great to be back. Thank you. Great to have you back. Well, as we always do on our media roundtable, Eric, we start off by highlighting a good piece of reporting. So what stood out for you this week? Uh, This one, Rose, uh, this one actually made me very sad. It it shocked me, though I was very glad it it appeared in the U.S. press. Um, It's from the latest edition of The New Yorker. It's Letter from the West Bank. Uh, The title is The Israeli Settlers Attacking Their Palestinian Neighbors, and it's by an author called Shane Bauer. And uh, it was a long, long piece, and it, it, it brought me to tears about the settlers pre- being protected by the Israeli Defense Forces who are grabbing a Palestinian land, taking their farms and their houses, and in some cases, uh, killing them. Mm. I, I, I just found this piece, uh, the Israeli settlers attacking their Palestinian neighbors, Uh, Thank you for this, Eric. You know, since you brought up a piece about what's going on in the West Bank, I just wonder what your thoughts are, given that you just got back from Ukraine. Does anything strike you about the differences you're seeing in terms of media coverage and how the media talk about deaths in Ukraine versus how major media talk about deaths and killings in Gaza? Uh, yes, I mean the 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 Western media, which I'm a member of, seems to be more direct uh, about the atrocities in in Ukraine, um, the violations, uh, the sadness, than they do in the West Bank and, and Gaza. I mean, you know, a lot of the North American press tends to use the passive voice. You know, in 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 Gaza and West Bank, were killed. Um, so I, I feel that I feel that the so the the true horror of what's happening in the West Bank and Gaza is is not being fully accurately reported. I, I think the the Western press is 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 better at uh, reporting what's actually happening in Ukraine. Having said that, I have not I have covered the Middle East on and off for years. I have not been to the West Bank. Um, or anywhere near Gaza since the war started in October 7th, though I am going in April. 
Talk a little bit more about that, Eric. Given that you are in Rome and so you read a lot of European media, you also read U.S. media. Um, We were struck by an interview that Deutsche Welle's Tim Sebastian did with former Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi from the Munich Security Conference. Um, We should play clips from this in in a future show, but you just don't hear these kinds of questions being asked to U.S. officials by European journalists, as you do here in the United States. It, it just, the questions he asked her, you, you just don't hear U.S. journalists ask these similar questions. Why, why do you think that's the case? If you're referring, Rose, to, are you, are you suggesting that the, 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 the journalists are asking tough questions on, on, on the West Bank and Gaza? Yes. I mean, I'm, I, the questions he asked, kind of, you just watch this and say, wow, I just don't hear American journalists asking these kinds of questions. No, I mean, there's there tends to be in Europe in general, certainly in um, Ireland, especially uh, Northern Europe. I would say a bit less so in 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 uh, in Germany and Italy, maybe France. That there there tends to be uh, quite a lot of uh, sympathy and empathy for for the Palestinians, what 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 they're going through. Um, there, you know, especially in Ireland, uh, certain, certainly some members of the European Parliament in Brussels and Strasbourg are, are highly critical of, uh, what's, what's been happening since October 7th, 7th, openly calling it a genocide. I mean, there's just no question in, in their minds uh, of these critics that it is. And there seems to be less, less, of a critical view in in the North American uh, press in this, especially the U.S. press. Mm. Well, we'll definitely play clips from this interview in a, in a future show. So, Eric, it has been two years since Russia invaded Ukraine. And because of the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel and the Israeli military assault on the Gaza Strip, again, we just passed 30,000 Palestinians who've been killed. We just passed that number yesterday. Coverage of Ukraine has been more about the military aspects of the war rather than its impact on the millions of people who've been displaced or are living in the middle of a war zone. Can you just tell us about your latest trip to Ukraine? Where did you go? And can you give us a sense of what life is like for people? Yeah, um, it's a good question. I, I've been to Ukraine four or five times uh, in the last year and change, and I tend to go for three weeks, which is about all you can take emotionally and physically and psychologically when you're working flat out and traveling all over the place. It's not easy traveling in Ukraine. Um, and I, I tend, Rose, I tend not to go to the front lines. I'm not a what they call a bang-bang correspondent. I tend to write about... What's happening, how the economy is functioning, how society is functioning, how the government is functioning. Uh, for example, um, uh, not this last trip, but uh, I, I just got back two weeks ago, but the one just before that, I focused on children. And uh, now we all know what PTSD is. It's it's what we used to call shell shock you know, a generation ago during the Vietnam War. Um, and instead of focusing on the soldiers when, you know, Tens of thousands, maybe more, have PTSD. But I, lo- I looked at the children, for example, and 
the Ukrainian estimates are three to four million children will need some sort of psychological care because they have psychological damage, including PTSD. And I spent a week in Lviv, which is in, in Western Ukraine, where the big hospitals are and the big psychological centers are talking to children and their parents. And it, it was, it was horrific. Many of these kids are missing limbs. One had a titanium plate in his cranium and could not speak at all. Mm. Uh, they were shaking. Um, they they felt alienated, depressed. They had lost friends, and this is what you don't read about much in the Western press uh, is is the effect on children. And this is a generation of children who will have to live with this uh, for for years. And the other problem is there's not enough psychologists and psychoanalysis analysis in Ukraine to treat them. Uh, they just this this asset just does not exist. So the treatment is is it's improving, but it's it's sporadic, and it may be the wrong treatment in some cases. Can you tell us more about this? Given that it's not getting that much attention, what resources are available for these children? Well, what they're doing is is they're importing some some psychoanalysis and uh, psychologists from other countries. Like I, I spent a, a full day with a British war trauma expert, and she was trying to give some tips on how to handle these children. For example, um, in in one former orphanage I went to where, where war trauma kids are treated, they're taught to relive their trauma and the British psychologist I interviewed said this is the wrong thing to do, that you're just re-traumatizing them. So the, so the level of sophistication how to treat kids may not be at sort of the, the level of the latest thinking, um, which is not to blame them for trying. They have the, in Ukraine, there's very few resources. There's very few. I mean, any doctors that exist are, are, of course, treating combat soldiers and any psychologists who exist there are helping soldiers with PTSD. The children are an afterthought, but it's a huge problem there. You're talking about the children that are being directly affected by this war. What about the children that have been kidnapped? Because that's been getting a, a, a bit more attention. I mean, I just searched right now, children and Ukraine, and there are a number of headlines. CBS, Ukrainian children recount horrors of being kidnapped by Russian soldiers. Uh, a, a number of stories about this. The Guardian had a piece recently about this. In, in December, the New York, Time had a, New York Times had a piece called Ukraine's Stolen Children, Forced Separations. What can you tell us about this? Well, I, I did interview... Um Yes, they, they are being kidnapped, and yes, it's considered a war crime. Um, and this is what they got uh, Putin on in the in uh, they nailed him on 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 kidnapping children and bringing them bringing them to to Russia. That was officially his war crime. Um, I did interview one child um, who was who had been kidnapped, and he was he was sent back. Luckily for him, to Ukraine. And the problem with these particular children is they trust no one, absolutely no one, because they've gone through such such horror in in after they they were kidnapped that they don't know who's who's friendly, who's not, who's trying to help them, who's not. So they've been shattered that way. But I only Rose, I only interviewed 
only one one child who had been kidnapped. Does this sound right to you, Eric? The Guardian reports that Russia, which boasts of taking in 700,000 children, stands accused of trying to erase their Ukrainian identity. 700,000? Uh, I wasn't aware it was that high, but it, you know, it's it, it it could be, and yes, it is it, it is part of the the cultural um, eradication of this country. I mean, another story I did was actually on that on on the 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 libraries, the museums mm-hmm. um, that had been destroyed, the art galleries where they they've come in and just looted. Um, all the um, the artwork, and this is—I mean, some of it is just theft, so they can sell it to, in the black market in Europe. But a lot of it is 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 cultural eradication. Uh, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin does not believe that Ukraine exists as a separate sovereign country, um, and anything that suggests otherwise is destroyed. You wrote a piece about a cathedral in the UNESCO-listed historic Odessa that was partially destroyed by Russia. Located on Ukraine's southern coast, Odessa is known as the Pearl of the Black Sea. Its ports are key for Ukraine to export agricultural products. You write, the cathedral is a microcosm of Ukraine, a mixture of hope and despair. The church was attacked twice. Uh, Father... Vidoyevich told you, I started working at this church in 2004, so I'm seeing it rebuilt twice. That is enough. What is important is that, that this war ends. Yes, uh, that was uh, that was uh, an interesting story. So it is the biggest cathedral in, in Ukraine. It's got a capacity of something like 12,000 worshipers. I mean, it's huge. It was destroyed. The original structure, Rose, was destroyed by Stalin during his atheist rage, where where anything that all or many Orthodox churches were were destroyed in, in Ukraine. Uh, it was re it was rebuilt um, only only quite recently, um, and it was almost destroyed last summer. I think it was it was July. And it was it was hit by a, a supersonic cruise missile, uh, which took out the area from the altar. Um, and it is being rebuilt yet again, but but very very slowly. So this cathedral is 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 giving Ukrainian it's it's rebuilding is giving Ukrainians hopes because it's it's such an important. Um, uh, architectural and religious object in 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 this city. My question was, if it's being rebuilt, is it going to be destroyed again? And it could be because the either intentionally or not, and I think a lot of times intentionally, the Russians are destroying cultural objects. Sometimes it's unintentional because they're using old Soviet crews, old Soviet missiles, which have zero accuracy. It could get killed and it can kill anyone anywhere. Mm. Today, we're speaking with Eric Regulli, an award-winning journalist and European bureau chief for the Globe and Mail based in Rome. He just returned from Ukraine. Uh, Eric, before we talk about the politics, uh, the military spending, the endgame for Russia, is, is there anything else you think we need to know about just how the people are affected by all of this that is not getting the attention it deserves? Yeah, um, I mean, that's another good question. I, I would say my first three or four trips, certainly three, 
I was super impressed by the the rah-rah mentality. Yeah, we're going to win this war. It's just a matter of, you know, weeks or months. Um, uh, a country absolutely united, lots of energy. Um, in this last trip, I, I sensed, I wouldn't say the opposite, but I certainly sensed um, uh, what the French would call a, a tristesse. There was a... Um, um, the morale was low. There was this, this feeling that, yeah, the polls say they're going to win. Most Ukrainians still think they're going to win the war, but it's dragging on. And there, there's such a sense of fatigue in the in the country, such a sense of uh, of sadness. Um, like you go into a, a bar, a restaurant in in Kiev, they're they're operating, and you know, maybe a quarter. Of of the clients would be men. The rest would be women. Why so few men? Because they're off fighting, and many of them are getting killed. Um, so it's it's I I did feel a, a, a fatigue that that was very very sad to me because they see no end in sight to this war. Right. How long can this continue? Well, um, until. I mean, this is like a, to, this war is it's like a World War One um, battle. I mean, they're fighting over a few kilometers of land or even a few meters of land every day uh, in the trenches. At the same time, it's got this high tech element because it's it's very much a drone war. How can it go? How long can it go on? Um well, look at uh, Russia is is picking up momentum now. Uh, they just took the town of uh, Advika uh, at horrendous cost to them. So they are the Russians are making some advances for the first time in in, in a long time. Um, it's a question of really you know, whether the United States is is going to release these these sixty billion dollars in aid that uh, Joe Biden wants to release, but it's it's stuck in Congress. Um, and if they don't get that money soon, um, Russia could advance much, much more. And then who knows, all bets are off. Can you talk about a, a bit more about this? How much of the future of this war really depends on funding from the United States? A huge amount. So, you know, the Europe just released, uh, I think it was 40 or 50 billion euros, um, which sounds like a lot, but it's over four years. So let's say it's it's 10 or so billion a year. The the Americans uh, are they donate not just there's two wars going on in there, Rose. One is the military war. One is the budget war. So they need weapons. And they also need to cover a huge budget deficit every month to keep from going the government from going bankrupt. The government has to buy the weapons it can. It has to pay pensions, has to pay salaries, has to keep, keep the hospitals going. So it needs two sets of assets. It needs the weapons and it needs the, finan- the, the financing to keep the government running. Um, without the $60 billion, um, they're, they're in trouble f- from the United States. Uh, there's only so much that Europe can do to fill the gap. You know, the United States is, has so much more resources and, and military capability than any of the European countries in NATO. What is the media coverage like in Europe of what, based on what's going on here in the United States? The $60 billion in aid has been bought, blocked by Republicans in Congress. It's. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's it's sh- it's shock, but it, it's 
I wouldn't say say it's it's that strong, but it's 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 certainly a worry. I mean, every every leader, everyone I know in Italy uh, talks about this. Um, and the other thing they're talking about is if Donald Trump does get elected, um, is any money at all going to go flow to Ukraine? And if it doesn't, then the, uh, Putin's going to have Russians going to have the upper hand in any peace negotiations. And if he's got the upper hand, he's he's probably not going to. He's not going to lobby for a peace negotiation because he'll realize he can take more land. Also, Putin doesn't ca- seem to care how many men he loses in battle. I mean, the the the, the law, the, the the NATO intelligence losses of the of of uh, how many of the Russians have, have lost in battle are many times more of uh, than the than the what who the how many of the Ukrainians have lost. Can you tell us more about that? Uh, what are the numbers there? Uh, what is happening and do you, do you have any sense of what's happening inside of Russia and how, I mean, we talked about this gosh months ago when you were on, but how Russians, what, are, what is their view of all of this at this point? Obviously a wide range of views, but what can you tell us about that? Well, just starting with some of the numbers, um, I, we, some journalists, including me, myself, we do get, um, um, some high-level NATO briefings on this very topic. So let's talk about the the Advika battle, which just ended, um, and Russia did win that. the The NATO is saying that they're from their intelligence, uh, which I imagine is fairly accurate, uh, that it was seven to one. So for every seven soldier, every one soldier that Ukraine lost, Russia lost seven. So the the Russian casualties are are, are huge. Wow. Uh, compared to the Ukrainian ones, which is, uh, you know, I can't believe how well Ukrainians has done. I mean, for every, you know, 155 millimeter shell that Ukraine has fired, um, Russia has five to 10. So it's it's really one sided and Ukraine should have been crippled by now, but it's not. That's that's a testament to what good fighters they are hmm. um, on Russia. I mean, who knows? I mean, it's heavily censored. Anyone who criticizes the war uh uh, goes to prison. Um, it's happening every day. Um, Nalvani is dead. Um, many Western leaders assume he was was uh, murdered. Uh, so I don't think the average Russian is, has any idea what's happening in the war. Hmm. I was just reading Navalny's funeral is happening today, and the Guardian's got some live coverage. Uh, multiple people have been detained. Uh, crowds in Moscow are chanting, Putin is a murderer, and Russia without Putin. Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. So, I mean, any 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 criticism, any dissent is, is, is just absolutely snuffed out immediately. I mean, I do have friends in Russia and they really have no clue what's what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. They're, they're thinking this is that Ukraine is full of Nazis. They have to be eradicated. The battles are being won. Um, you know, glory to Russia. Um, so I, I, I just, you know, some of them may get through Telegram channels and you know, um, you know, through through their virtual private networks, maybe picking up some more more accurate information. But I, I. I do not believe the average Russian has any idea what's happening, um, the true story, what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. And that is because of their media? Yeah, of course, the media, the propaganda machine. I mean, look, at both sides are, you know, are are propaganda experts. But, I mean, Russia is, 
just has no the, the average Russian has no clue what's happening in Ukraine. Eric, when do you plan to go back, and what's the next story you plan to work on? Um, I I hope to go back in April or May, where there's three of us rotating uh, in and out. I, I think that one of the stories I want to do is. Um, um, I've already did a bit on this on the oligarchs. I mean, the other story that we haven't talked about is how Ukraine is desperate to join both NATO and the European Union. Uh, it's a corrupt country. It's It's got some very powerful, rich, nasty oligarchs. And Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, realized he's never going to get into the EU unless he starts hammering these oligarchs and putting some in prison. He actually has put one oligarch in prison already which is unimaginable uh, a few years ago. So I, I want to keep on top of, of that file. Drones are always a really interesting story. Um, and, uh, you know, the financial side. But I also want, I really want to go back and, and talk to the children again um, and uh, get an update on them. To me, that was that was the story that really got to me. Uh, it, it, it just, it, it, it grabbed me emotionally. Uh, you know, when you were talking about that, Eric, we were thinking about, what is happening in uh, Sudan, for example? What is happening in Gaza? Uh, what is happening to children in war zones around the globe and how they are so affected by it? And you're right. We, we rarely hear about it. Yeah, and I just want to keep, uh, you know, the story I did, the last big story, I'll, I'll send it to you, was I think I was published in December or January. And um, it, it's... I couldn't find a comparable piece on this about the childhood trauma. It's just it's it's largely ignored by the Western press. Um, so I want to I want to keep on top of that file, and I, I want to track some kids that I that I interviewed in Lviv uh, in December. I, I just want to track their progress as, as the war continues. There may be some great news, but I, I'm not getting my hopes up. Well, thank you for this important reporting, Eric. Eric Regulli is an award-winning journalist and European Bureau Chief for The Globe and Mail. He's based in Rome. He just returned from a trip to Ukraine. He's the author of Ghosts of War, Chasing My Father's Legend Through Vietnam. You can find our interview about his book at yourcallradio.org. Thanks so much, Eric. Thank you very much, Rose. Bye-bye. Ciao, ciao. And you can find Eric's pieces at yourcallradio.org. Coming up after a break, we will talk about coverage of the Republican-controlled Alabama Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos are children. What are the implications? This is Your Calls Media Roundtable. We'll be back after this.